and welcome to the Cocktail Hour with me, your host, Erin Folk. The Cocktail Hour is a place where we celebrate the women in business who are shaking shit up. This week, we are talking to Dr. Pam Shaw, professor of pediatrics at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I am so excited you're here. We tried to do this once. Yes. You had family emergency. Yes. And it worked out the second time. Absolutely. And you've never been on a podcast before. I have not. So, but video. Yes. But you're an expert at video, just Mm. not podcasts. Have a face for radio. It's good. That is absolutely not true. Everyone's going to see a picture of you. That is absolutely not true. But I'm excited that you came on and I'm excited that you are our first podcast. Great. I'm going to tell everybody who you are. Okay. Dr. Pam Shaw is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Kansas Medical Center. For the university, she's the assistant dean for clinical sciences and the associate vice chancellor for student services. She served as president of the Kansas chapter of the AAP and recently completed six years as the district chair and board member for District 6 for the American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP. She's been involved in training for the chapter to help private practice physicians offer evidence-based and quality care to children, including developmental screening, mental health screening, detection, and treatment of obesity and oral health services and immunizations. Part of her new job is providing student services to students providing student services to students from the medical school, nursing school, and health professions. Her undergrad degree was in human biology at the University of Kansas. She attended medical school and did her pediatric residency at the University of Kansas. After experiencing private practice, Dr. Shaw returned to the University of Kansas in 1990, where she has been involved in the teaching and practice of general pediatrics since then. She's married and has three sons and one daughter-in-law. She loves to read and travel and watch sporting events, especially KU basketball. Welcome. Rock chalk. <laughs> I sat in a in a um, a speaking event this morning uh, for young women on the move, and they had a former Kentucky basketball player as their woman basketball player as their uh, keynote. And she's like, I'm just going to skip over the part in this city where I say Kentucky basketball is the number one thing, right? Is that a good idea? And everyone's like, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, especially with you in the room, right? Yes. You are you are very pro-KU. I am. That's where I went to school. You just finished and I didn't. Yeah. And then you finished more of it. And then more of it. And then you went back. It was like I was a student forever. Did you grow up here? No, I grew up in southeast Kansas. Okay. A small town near the Oklahoma border called okay. Altamont. How many people? Uh... 2000 on a good day oh wow yeah and mom and dad yes uh, my mom uh, was divorced and so I uh, she remarried when I was 12 so I had okay. a stepfather who gave me away um, oh, he, okay. he is my father in every way nice and were either one of them doctors nope no I was the first in my family to go to college Oh, to go to college at all? Yes. Brothers, sisters? Uh, my sisters both went for small periods of time. One got an associate degree, but uh, um, I was the only one who finished and then went on to graduate school. Did you go straight out of high school? I did. Okay, so when you were going to college, did you know this is what you want to do? You wanted to be a doctor? No, it was a really interesting story, actually. So um, I went to a small high school. Of, there were 143 in my graduating class. And uh, I was valedictorian. I will wow. put that in there right there. So did you do the speech? I did. I did the speech. It was really great. Yeah. It was a good speech. And um, then I went on to college, and I thought I was going to do elementary education because, first of all, that's what women do is they teach. Okay. And then second Or be a nurse. Right? Yes, Teacher or be, be a nurse. nurse. Yes. Um, so that was what I was headed for. And then... 
the first semester of my first year at college, they put me in a, in a introductory course for elementary education. And um, I went to a classroom and I sat there in the classroom watching what the teacher did and went, oh my God, there's no way in hell I can do this. You know, I was really taken aback. She was marvelous, by the way, but I was like... A whole different level, right? Yeah, it was awful. So I went to my advisor, who was a really wonderful woman, and she looked over my file and everything, and she said, you know, you're really good in math and science, and that's where where your uh, proclivities lie. Have you thought about doing something like nursing or medicine? And I said, no, not really. And she said... Why don't you take some biology classes and see what you think? Well, I loved it. Yeah. And I, so I decided um, at that point, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it all the way. So I'm going to be a doctor and not a <laughs> all nurse. In. Okay. I'm all in. And so that's how I got into medicine and pre-med. And I did love it. It was obvious that I, I, I uh, did have some affinity t- yeah. towards it and that I liked it. Okay. But did you know at that point, Going from thinking of being a school teacher, did you know, okay, I'm going to be a doctor, but for kids? Was that I on your radar? I knew I wanted to do work with kids. Okay. That was why I chose elementary education. So um, I knew that was really where my path and where my passion lie uh, lied. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it, that part I knew. When I went to medical school, um, I liked everything, though. I really did. I loved OBGYN. Uh, and again, another woman, very smart woman who was my resident then, you know, I told her, I said, I think I want to do OB. And she says, well, here's a few words of advice. She says, you're a really good student. We'd love to have you. However, every time that baby's born, you head to the warmer with the baby and you are cooing and going over and checking the baby out. You lose track of the mom who would be your patient if you were an OB. And I go, oh, Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good advice. Yeah. And then you don't get to see the baby anymore, right? That's right. You just get to That's see the right. mom until they get to be an, a, a, a young woman and need right. OB care. <laughs> until they're like, yeah, wait 14 more years to see that kid. Yeah. So, oh, wow. So that's when you decided pediatrics. Yes. Is it, and I've obviously did not go to medical school, right? So the, the amount of my knowledge of medical school are the years that I have grinded and dedicated to Grey's Anatomy. Yes. Right. It's not and like I hear it's nothing like that, right? <laughs> well, it's somewhat like that. I mean, the the um, uh, collegiality, mm-hmm. n- not sleeping with each other, yeah. but the collegiality. Not the roofs on the side. Yeah, yeah. I'm always wondering about of, of working together is, I think, part of Grey's Anatomy. And there's some drama. There's, you know, whenever yeah. you have people working together, there's going to be drama. Not to the degree of Grey's Anatomy. Things uh, aren't blowing up. Yeah. And they, they cross over a lot. So they have like these people who do pediatric surgery and this other stuff, which most people are not able to do. But when you're a student, is this, since you said you tried OBGYN, is, because I, re- I guess where my question is on that show, they try everything while they're a student. Is that what really happens? Yes. You do get to sample, so to speak, where you get to rotate through uh, surgery, family medicine, uh, internal medicine. OB, peds, psychiatry, neurology. So you get a a variety of things that you can try. Um, I call it imprinting because it's really interesting. If you've worked with a doctor, shadowed or whatever, and they were really a model Mm -hmm. physician, you want to be like them. So many times our our young students come in and they think they want to be a emergency medicine doctor or an orthopod. And then they go through the rotations, and this just happened with a uh, young woman that I just talked to. She was convinced she wanted to be an orthopod, and then she did peds, and she goes, 
I'm so confused. I like pizza. I want to do that. Yeah. So when do you have to declare what you do? You have to after your third year, because that's when you start um, uh, interviewing for residency spots. And that's when you learn all the like details in your residency. Have you ever thought this was weird? So I have a lot of friends randomly in law. And I remember one of them said to me, he was having a really hard time after college figuring out what kind of law to go into, right? And I think a lot of times people loop in doctor, lawyer at the same level of school, at the same, but medical school, there's actually decisions made where in law, you don't make those decisions till after you're in law. That's correct. Yeah. And it was so crazy to me because I didn't, I didn't understand that, that I, has it always been like that in medical where you declare very early on? Um, I, that's a really good question. I'm not sure that it's always been like that. I think probably since um, there was a physician named Flexner who came up with the idea of uh, something other than just general practice. Okay. So a lot of people used to do what was called your intern year, even then, and you would rotate through all of these uh, specialties, and then you would just hang your shingle out and be able to practice medicine. Uh, and then it became the idea of, well, we really need to make sure you know what you're doing in, yeah. in more than just every area. So they uh, became residencies then where there were more than one year where you would actually decide what you wanted to do and then learn more about that specialty. Did you do your residency at KU? I I did. So you've been at KU the entire time, your whole career? Yes. Okay. So let's ask this. So if you're from a small town, what did mom and dad say when you said, I want to go to medical school when it came to medical school bills, right? right? What was that conversation? Well, that, that, uh, that was not, it was not easy for my parents, even in college. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did work study, I had scholarships, um, and I paid for, and I did student loans. Um, What scholarships did you have? Like what kind of scholarships? Um, at KU, I had the Elizabeth Berger Watkins scholarship, um, for young women. Um, and, uh, in medical school, I got what was called KMS, which is Kansas Medical Service Loan. And so what I did was promise to serve in an underserved area of Kansas after I finished my primary care residency, and they would pay my tuition. Oh, wow. So I got my tuition paid by doing that scholarship. Is Was the KU Med count as serving in, or is that when you left? Yeah, I, that's why I went into private practice okay. uh, to, to do that in Fort Scott, Kansas, which is down in southeast Kansas. Yeah. And um, I came back up, and at that time they had switched – that because Wyandotte County was then underserved, yeah. that you could be a faculty member at the med center and pay back your loan also. Okay. Oh, wow. And so it just paid it back through that. Yes. So did Thankfully. you have all that figured out before you told your parents? No. No. <laughs> no. And uh, I had been dating my husband in college. Okay. And so we planned to get married uh, right after we both graduated from um, undergraduate. <laughs> then you never graduated for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, we got mar- married um, in, right before I started medical school. So basically, oh, wow. mom and dad were not on the hook for medical school. He was. And, <laughs> and he married me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was for earning potential, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're still married. Yeah. Sweet. Okay, let's, let's talk through this. Um, when you were going to medical school and your husband, you meet him in undergrad, what was he going to school for? Electrical engineering. Okay, so he was in a very smart, promising career as well. Do you think dating somebody that that was very career focused had a? And by career focused, I mean when I went to college, 
everyone I dated was like, I don't know, I'll do something, right? And we were just bouncing around trying to pass classes. I feel like the people that were in the engineering school, the pre-med school, like they kind of had their lives together, right? Do you feel like meeting that man that also was focused, that it became more of a partnership that allowed you to go, oh yeah, I don't need to be a teacher, I should be a doctor? I do feel that. Yeah. I mean, he was, first of all, he's been uber supportive with everything I've wanted to do. And at some at some points, I felt like he gave stuff up so that I could do what I wanted to do, which is really quite a partnership. Yeah. So he he really was uh, quite supportive of me. I have a kind of a funny story about that. So our, my first year of medical school, it was different than anything I'd ever done before. And I was a good student, but I never really had to study. Yeah. You know, I could study like the night before and ace a test. And you were probably the smartest in your class in undergrad, right? Well, now you're with... Somewhat, Pierce. yeah, and yeah. then you're with people who are smarter than you are. Yeah, um, at at medical school, and so my first neuroanatomy test, I got a 67, which is failing on. I'd never failed a test in I my life. I didn't even know there was a neuroanatomy thing. Yeah. So yeah, it was, I'm impressed. It was, <laughs> it was brutal. That was the first thing you ever failed in school. Ever it was ever. a neuro test. Neuroanatomy test. Yeah. And so I came home that evening, and I said to my husband, I said. I failed. I, I'm going to have to quit medical school. I have to find something else to do. And he looked at me and he said, we've paid your tuition. You're going back and you're going to work on this. So I did. Were you mad at him for a second or were you like, you're oh, right? Oh, yeah, I was really mad. I mean, I expected him to say, oh, yeah, honey, I'm so sorry. You, you know, you, I know you tried your best. He said I had to work harder. That was good, though. It was. It was great. It was it was like that moment where you you know, the light bulb turns on, you go, you know, you really have to study for this. Can we talk about how you failed one test and you were about to give up? Yeah. Okay. So, so a lot of times I have different people on the show. I have a wide variety of people. A lot of people that I've had on the show, um, and I relate to, I guess, is people that failed a lot to get to where they're at. However, I have recently developed the, uh, mindset around I think sometimes it's harder if you expect too much of yourself and you're used to doing that and achieving that than when you fail, you don't know how to fail, right? Yeah. So how did you learn? Was that, did you fail another test after that test throughout your career? I didn't. So what do you think happened mindset wise besides your husband saying you got to go back? Because he could have told you to go back and you could have failed your next test, right? What do you think happened mindset wise that you put yourself in a position to not experience that? failure feeling again as at least as far as it came as tests um, I, th I have thought about this because you know I deal with students who have failures as yeah. well and trying to to figure out what uh, what was different about my mindset after that one test and what happened after uh, Greg told me yeah you're gonna go back I I had to start thinking about so what did I do that I could have done differently mm -hmm. I mean what was it I do have imposter syndrome where I don't think that things that that have happened to me I deserve. Yeah. And I I recognize that at that point right at that point when I had failed that I was living my imposter life instead of wow. living my real life. How that, old were you? 20? 20. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and it was it was really I Did you know what that was though? Oh no. Okay. I name it now. But okay. at the time I didn't. And it was like okay, you're either who you want to be, or you can go ahead and drop out and fail. Mm -hmm. And there was so much um, baggage from family. You know, I was the first one to graduate from college, and I was the first one to ever think about going to medical school. I felt like I had to do something for all 
my sisters, first of all, um, to show them that they could do it. And for other young women who wanted to be doctors too. So there was a lot of, um, yeah, you can do this. You just have to figure out what you did and do it differently. What was the percentage of of women in your, in your medical class? It was about 30%. So it was mostly male dominated. Oh yeah. Okay. Baggage from family. Did you, let's dig into that a little bit. Okay. When you say baggage from family, it sounds like you were carrying the, their expectations on your shoulders. Absolutely. However, sometimes I find that when people come from families where they are the first, you can, sometimes the success also draws criticism. Is that? Yeah. Okay. It goes both ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think for mom and dad, they were so proud of me and had so many expectations. That's what I got from them. Um, my sister's... A, often would say things like, oh, you're so smart. And, you know, you, you're mom and dad's favorite because, and I'd say, I'm not mom and dad's favorite because of what I do. I'm mom and dad's favorite because they can depend on me. Yeah. What number were you? Middle. The middle. Oh, wow. And probably we have what we know about middle, middle children, right? Yeah. You were in the middle. So you were also trying to prove yourself a lot. Yes. Which turned into what sounds like perfection for you. It was a lot of that, yeah. And and I was known as the child who was the perfectionist. Oh, so what does what did that look like as you grew into an adult dealing with that perfectionism? That is a hard lesson to learn you're not perfect. So that neuroanatomy test was also a lesson in, you know, you have to work hard, number one. And number two, you're not always going to be perfect. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? because I hadn't had to deal with that. Yeah. And so I can't even imagine. <laughs> like was, you learned a lot of lessons from I that. I did. With just one day and one lesson, but it was really interesting because um there it also was a lesson for our, for my marriage because as a medical student you can get consumed mm-hmm. by the curriculum and really get divorced basically because you don't have time for each other. Were there a lot of people that went through divorces? Yes. Were there a lot of people that were married? There was probably about oh, what maybe twenty percent of the class that was married. Did you and your husband ever have the talk that people are going through divorce? What are we going to do to not do this? No. Okay. We didn't. Uh, my husband's an introvert, first of all. Okay. <laughs> Which is interesting since I'm such an extrovert, but yeah, um, Th- that's a, what works well. My husband's a very big introvert too. Yeah. So he, you know, talking to him, it had to be really, you know, and then there would be moments of clarity where he would say something you, and you have to listen real carefully because a sentence will come out and you'll go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> like yeah. the sentence. No, you're going back. I pay tuition, <laughs> those kind of things. So you have to be really listening for yeah. that. Um, so when, if I'm going to talk, you know, as far as having the talk, I'll have to say, okay, I'm going to talk now. I expect you to listen to about half of what I'm going to say. <laughs> and then I want to hear what you have to say yeah. kind of thing. But yeah, it's, uh, uh, we made a, a agreement early in medical school right after that test, actually. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to have to work harder, number one. And, you know, we were newly married. And I said, so here's the deal. We got to figure out how we're going to make sure we have time for each other. So we scheduled time. We had oh, wow. date night. Okay. Um, how often? Um, we'd have a date night every Friday night. Okay. Um, and when we were without children, we would go to things, fun things like movies and stuff like that. When we had children, we didn't do that as often. Yeah. So maybe it was the park yeah. you know, kind of thing. But still did it. Do you still do it? 
Um, now we we schedule time still. Yeah. We find that really it has worked. And I tell you know young faculty especially it said, don't get consumed by it. You really have to do it. But the thing is you have to schedule it because you won't do it if you don't. Right. So we do um, we schedule time off so that we can be together and then we'll go you know to the Hilton and here in town. Yeah. And we'll spend the night there, go out to dinner, nice. and and then have breakfast together and go home. Nice. Have you gone to the Crossroads Hotel yet? Not yet. I tried that one. Okay. I just recently. I love there. bed and breakfast too. So yeah. we do. Uh, there's a one down by the plaza, which is excellent. We love to, and then we love to eat on the plaza too. So. Yeah, yeah. The the Crossroads they did a lot with that building. Okay, so uh, how old were you when you started having children? Uh, let's see. Danny was born. This is terrible when you don't have to remember. Danny was born in '85, so I was 25. So you were still in medical school? I was. I was beginning my fourth year of medical school. Okay. Were you trying to have a baby? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know what that life is like. Um, <laughs> while you're trying to have a baby, what is your mindset around how you were going to do medical school, mm-hmm. do marriage, and do being a mom? That We we did have that conversation, too, because I told him, I said, you know, if, if I'm going to do this and I want to have a baby... Um, then I'm going to really need a lot of help from yeah. you. This is, you know, bottom line. If we're going to make this work, you're going to have to be more than a partner sometimes. Yeah. And um, he was quite agreeable. He wanted um, children too. So um, I decided after watching other students who are older than me that having it at the beginning of my fourth year would be okay because after you do all your required rotations in third year, you can do electives in your fourth year as well as interview for um, your residency position. So I thought, well, if I time it just right and I have this baby in July, then I'll have like three months off, which is like... as good as it gets. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, at least back then it was. <laughs> and so I sit down and talked with the assistant dean for student affairs and who was a woman. And she advised me not to do it, first of all. She says, I think you should wait. And she says, but I understand and we'll work out your schedule if you do it, which was good news to me. That's yeah. all I needed was some leeway to think about it. And so I had Danny July 12th. So it went according to plan. Yes, it did. Only he was supposed to be a week earlier. Okay. And he was a week late. But yeah, he I went in to see the doctor. <laughs> you know, you go weekly yeah. at the end of your of your pregnancy. And I went in on um, two days before the 12th. No, on the 11th for my... And I was in tears because he hadn't come yet. And he goes, he's going to come. It'll be fine. And he's, he did my exam, and he says, you are really close to being in labor, so I just want you to go home, you know, just to act normal. And I started in labor that evening. So. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, are you a tougher patient because you're a doctor? Yes. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I am, I'm probably, I'm, I'm compliant, but not super compliant. Yeah. Um, my, my doctor's at the med center too, and it's a woman and she and I have those talks, you know, where she says, you have to do this yeah, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Do you find it's harder when you are a doctor to other doctors? Are they tougher patients for you too? Um, no, you know, that's interesting. Um, cause I take care of a lot of doctors' kids. Yeah. So, um, I, I think, there, there's a different kind of rapport we have than I do with other patients because um, when I give them, you know, advice, they 
sometimes they roll their eyes at me yeah. and sometimes they don't. But I think that they are pretty easy to deal with. Now, I will be honest. I will tell you that most of of my my patients, um, it, or they're in the health professions, but I also take care of, of underserved patients, either uninsured, Medicaid, CHIP, those kind of patients. And I love that patient population because they are so attentive to everything I say mm -hmm. um, because, and it, not that the doctor's patients aren't, but they they are hungry for information. Yeah. So for me, it's so... Well, you're the only person to answer those questions for them. Yes. Right. They don't have family. They don't have, you know, yeah. the book knowledge that, that sometimes the health professionals do. So I just love working with those families because my job, you know, I was going to be a teacher. Yeah is to teach. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, not only do I get to teach medical students, I get to teach families. Uh, well, I find it really interesting how you wanted to be a teacher, and then you put the strong halt on that and went to become a doctor, yet you became a doctor at a teaching hospital. Yes. Right? So it's kind of like it all lined up. Yeah. Were you thinking that when you went to KU? Oh, no. No, I, I didn't want to. After I finished residency, I just wanted to get out of there. I just wanted mm -hmm. to be in private practice. That's what I'd always wanted to do. Um, but after being in private practice for a year, uh, I missed the teaching part of what I did as a resident. Yeah. And uh, I really missed being around uh, other people who were looking for knowledge. Yeah. And not that being in private practice, you can't look for knowledge. That I'm certainly not saying that. But it was, it was evident that I missed the environment at the med center. So I told my husband, I said, well, we'll go back. To, to Kansas City, um, I'm gonna try to get a job at the med center. If I don't, I'll get a job in private practice and then I can take medical students yeah. in my practice. And he, he said, well, that whatever you wanna do, it's fine with me. So we moved back. And you went back there in 1990, mm -hmm. which put you there 28 years. Mm -hmm. Is my math right? Okay, I'm not good at math. You're the, you're the good at math. Okay, let's have this conversation because I own a company that has a ton of millennials that work for me, right? Uh, I fall right there on the edge of the Gen X millennial thing. It depends which, which survey you look at, which one I'm in. I like to say I'm probably a little bit more Gen X because I remember like 90s grunge and stuff, right? What is the easier generation that you feel has adapted to learning and what is the harder working generation? Uh, that, that's a really good question. Um, you know, the generational differences in many ways are refreshing. Yeah. And I say that as someone who has to really, right now, we're working with four generations right now in the med yeah. center. So you've got the baby boomers who are retiring, my generation, and I'm right on the cusp of a baby boomer, um, and then the Gen X and, and the millennials. The thing that I think the millennials have... Um, that is a little tougher is they're used to um, conversing over social media, mm -hmm. which is a whole different way of talking. It doesn't work really well with patients yeah. and uh, texting. And exactly. Yeah. So they don't want to do things in person. They'd rather do things on their, mm -hmm. on their computer. So it's an advantage in that they're natives to computer technology and they immediately eat up technology which is great right. because we're using a lot of technology and teaching now but it was a hard transition right to get hospitals Abs onto technology absolutely and we're still working on that yeah but uh what they don't do well is communicate well in person well the heart of the doctor patient relationship is communication in person so yeah. we end up you know talking about well you know it's probably not appropriate 
appropriate to say to a 60 year old that that's awesome that's right. probably not going to go even though you say it every other word when you're talking yeah. so we spend a lot of time with communication um, and how to do in person what's professional and there's a, a casualness or a um, uh, intimacy that's missing because they've been on their phones on the or on screens the whole time that you don't get if you have, you know, if you've been conversing yeah. with people that they have to learn. So what do you think is the plus of the millennials? That technology. The technology. Is truly a plus. And they're also innovative. Yeah. I mean, they're really open to new things and trying new things. Yeah. Um, and that is a really plus for anybody who's in medicine because you, you tend to get folks who say, well, we've always done it that way. Right. But this generation is not like that at all. It's like, yeah, you want to try that? Sounds good to me. Let's do that. They also have um, a lot of knowledge of how to, to do things on social media. So how do you appeal to other millennials? Yeah. How do you get millennials to come into your practice? Uh, well, you have to have a social media presence, right? Yeah. So you have to you be on Facebook. You have to be on Twitter. Oh, Facebook is old. I, that's, you know, yeah, shows that's, how those old are for I, your baby yeah, boomers. Instagram. <laughs> and you have to be Snapchat. On, on Snapchat and Vine <laughs> and all of these things. And this Vine's is, gone too. And it's gone now too. Shoot, <laughs> I'm really behind. Uh, <laughs> but the, but, those but are that's the, how much you have to keep up, right? Exactly, and they are keeping exactly. up. Uh, okay, so a big thing that I've noticed millennials, I have mostly millennials and then a few Gen Xs that, that work for me, but mostly millennials. The one thing that I've noticed majorly is um, passion for causes. Mm. Does that play into the med school? How, how does that play into it? That is a great observation because they these young people are so altruistic and so social justice oriented. I mean, one of the big pluses of the millennials is truly that they are accepting. Mm -hmm. um, they accept all people, all uh, types of people. They're willing to listen yeah. to other people's viewpoints um, and understand them. Um, and they truly have done all these marvelous things before they come to medical school. Like they've done these trips abroad that, you know, to help people. They've, uh, they've been involved in local charities and organizations in their communities. And it's, they haven't done it just to get into medical school. They've done it because they want to. Yeah. And so that is remarkable to me. And I tell them that because I was so focused when I was an undergraduate, I getting grades that I didn't think about the outside the world as much um, I mean I was involved but not to the degree that these young people are uh, what does you said that they overall it doesn't matter for them as much um, like who some what somebody looks like or who somebody is they just want to help people you've been there 28 years our entire culture has changed and I feel like it's changed and it's changed back and it's like three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back when it comes to how we interact with people of other races, with disabilities, with uh, different religion, different ages, kind of all of that. What have you seen over the 28 years in general as far as, so like I'm looking at it from the outside world, right, where we feel, I found it very interesting. I recently went and saw Rent and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I forgot that in the late 90s, we were totally cool with everybody loving who they wanted to love for a little while, right? Because rent is all about different races, different sexual orientation, different dreams, div a little bit different ages. They're almost all the same age because that's what the play's about, is them trying to figure that out. But 
it like that was the most popular musical at the time but then now and i think we're on the trying to get on the swing up but for a couple of years the past couple of years we got really back in the into the we got to see people's real side of what they thought about race i'll say it that way what have you seen inside the hospital walls because i imagine that if you are a doctor you have vowed to help a person regardless of any of that right mm. however people's biases play in to their lives every day what has been that journey through the hospital what does that look like yeah, that's a, a great question because it has been a journey. Yeah. And I think we're still journeying um, as we try to become um, really to show equity yeah. for all. And I think um, we also have to take into consideration where many of these young people come from. Uh, the majority of our, our classes are from Kansas. Yeah. So diversity in Kansas is different than diversity in New York City. Right. And so they haven't all been exposed to a lot of diversity in any way, whether it's disability, um, uh, sexuality, any of those things. So a lot of it is a journey in learning. And if they're open and honest with themselves, that's the, it's the implicit bias kind of thing, if they can understand, and we actually teach that. So they all have to take an implicit bias test. Oh, wow. So they understand. They have to take a test on it? Yeah. Oh, wow. They have to take a test, the Harvard test, so they understand where their biases are before they start so that that really helps then to take that journey of self part of being a doctor is always looking at what you yourself are feeling because uh, and we say this over and over again you are who you are you are your own culture you are who you were raised where you were raised your skin color all of the things that you are but every patient you see is a different culture whether they look like you or not, they are a different culture. Even the person that grew up next door to you went to the same school. Exactly. What goes exactly. on behind their doors and yeah. And when I structure. when I started in a medical school, there was a lot of sexism. There still is. It hasn't gone away. Uh, but having more women and especially women in power, in authority, um, has helped that because yeah. part of this is just learning um, how and where and and snuffing some of that out. Um, there still is um, a lot of bias in medicine uh, regarding race. I mean, we know that from the yeah. literature that's out there. Uh, black women having babies and, and, and dying in, in childbirth, twice the rate of Really? White, I didn't white know women. that. Yeah. Twice uh, the rate. Mm-hmm. And why is that? I, I know you said it in this conversation, so why do you think it is? I think a lot of it has to do with how uh, doctors perceive women's complaints in general, but especially black women's complaints. Wow. So, you know, people that are famous, like Serena Williams almost died when in childbirth because people were thinking that she wasn't knowing what she was talking about. She was about. just being dramatic. Yeah. Or... yeah. So it's wow. a lot of it is really understanding other people's culture, yeah. but also understanding that there is that bias there. And so you have to recognize that bias and make sure you're not feeding into it as well. I always wonder... And you've listened to my podcast, so you know I say some crazy things sometimes. So I want this to come off correctly. But I've always wondered in hospitals, engineering firms, um, big places like Facebook or LinkedIn, right? What we talk about in business is on the business side of things is diversity, diversity. We need to get more people in the in the room that don't look alike, that don't think alike, that don't grow. Like we need more different thoughts. And when you go to a hospital or a place like Facebook or an engineering firm, everybody doesn't look like because you have a very Asian and Indian population as well. And sometimes businesses can get 
the feeling that they're doing well with diversity because of that. I was recently at LinkedIn and recently like a few months ago and I looked around and literally there were no black people. And so I asked our Asian host because there were because on paper they were killing the diversity game when it came to white people, right? But because they had a ton of Asian and Indian people. Um, but I said to our host, I said, do any black people work here? Do any black people work here? And he said it was like 0.3% or something, something insanely small for having the amount of employees they have, right? Can hospital, do you feel how like hospitals kind of get caught up in that same mentality of diversity? Oh yeah, I think it, I think it's one of those things that sometimes people just look at the numbers, right? But it, it really has to do with um, you can't believe you can be something unless you see someone yeah. who's done it. So we haven't done as well with pipelines, especially with African Americans, um, and for them to see physicians that look like them. Right. There's yeah. two doctors. Do you know about the sister doctors? The yeah. two, and they're blowing up. Yeah. There's their sisters who are black who are doctors. Yeah. And I'm not even sure what kind of doctors, but they've they've grown their social following just because girls can see themselves in them. Exactly. And they've been on everything. They've been on like Ellen and Steve Harvey and all all the things because they've grown their social following. But there's two that I can think of, right? Okay. I'm gonna circle back around to Grey's Anatomy while we're having this conversation. And listen, I understand that it's not like your real work, but I don't know if you know this part of Grey's Anatomy. I'm like a huge fan, but um, so Chandra Clark is the writer of Grey's Anatomy, an African-American woman. When she was casting the, um, the oh, the name just escaped me, uh, the lady that's the chief on there, the short little black lady. Yes. Um, she was actually supposed in, like the thought process was she was going to be a tall blonde woman. And like the sassy, tall, blonde woman. And when she came in, uh, she just, she wanted to audition for that part. They said, you're not really what we're looking for. She said, just let me audition for it. And she blew them away that they completely changed the role to fit her, her personality. That show for the past, however many years, six, seven years, she's been the chief, uh, the chief of staff on there, which is like is the head honcho on the show. I'm not sure if they even have the same layout as a real hospital, but it has allowed some women to see themselves. Has that show, and I know as a doctor, that's like it's like if somebody does a marketing show. I'm like, no, that's not really how it goes, right? You're making it like the, the there's some of them out there, but has that show played any part where you feel like some women have been able to see that themselves in there or shows like that? I, I do. And I think, you know, in general, TV obviously hasn't been good for uh, minorities or people yeah. of color uh, to show people how they really are. And that instead they've shown stereotypes of, right. of, of people. But I think seeing a woman that's powerful like her and even Scandal is, you know, her other, right. her other show showing a, a very strong power. And even how to get away with murder. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because all three black, of them do it. Yeah. Strong black woman who is succeeding in her profession. I think all it does is do, it adds credibility to somebody being watching that who can say, yeah, I, I could do that. Yeah. Even though they know it's a TV show and so forth. It. But it's it's even more powerful in real life. Yeah. If you have uh, uh, people of color in positions of power, first of all, but also in in positions that are seeing uh, patients. So you know, 
we have pipeline programs at the med center where we try to go into um, Kansas City, Kansas and, and Kansas City, Missouri and show those kids. We take you know our medical students yeah. and we, we try to show these kids that they can do it. There are people who look like them who are doing this, who are on, in medical school, in residency, et cetera. And um, give them the perception and the, the reality that it's possible for them too. Do you feel like the African-American community is growing with every class or is, is it stagnant? It's really hard in Kansas, realistically, yeah. because, you know, we part of our mission is to recruit in the state of Kansas. And so um, we have the we have populations in Kansas that, frankly, uh, if they are very good academically, they get lots of offers to places like Harvard and Stanford and mm -hmm. things like that. So do you want to stay in Kansas? <laughs> It's I a, don't know. I never got a Harvard yeah. offer. <laughs> so I think it would be, it, it's difficult um, for for them to make a decision to stay in their homes. So we, our job, and part of my job is to make sure that it's attractive yeah. for all students of all um, colors and, and shapes and sizes and, and, and to make sure that we have uh, the best medical school in, in Kansas. How many people come back and go to medical school? We do have a lot of alt career, um, alternative career, okay, <laughs> or second career um, students as well. It seemed to have increased in the last few years, and and part of that I think is um, there's a certain amount of burnout that happens in every career. Yeah, and you're sitting there thinking, you know, I always wondered about being a doctor. Yeah, and so we've had uh, we've had football players. Wow. Not the one who plays for the Chiefs, but yeah. um, he was Canadian and he played for a Canadian football team and he's a uh, sports medicine doctor. Okay. Which makes sense. Well, that does make sense, yeah. right? And um, we've we've had people who uh, were attorneys. Um, we've had people who I think actually some of them continue to practice both. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is really difficult. That's, real, that's really achieving. Yeah, right and really difficult to do. Yeah. So they would do both. And then we've had... Um, all kinds of people from different careers, business, um, as well as other careers. Okay, I know you can't tell me names, but tell me the story of the most inspiring student you've ever taught. Oh, I, it, it's actually recent. Um, she is um, deaf. Oh, wow. And she uh, was remarkable. And it teaches me, I have a, a son with a disability, and uh, you know, I've always prided myself on being very open to uh, uh, the dis uh, disabled student. But you know, people would say, "Well, she can't be a doctor; she's deaf. You have to be able to hear." Yeah. But she, she was remarkable. She was like at the top of her class. Um, not only was she smart, she was compassionate, and the patients loved her. Um, and she's uh, doing pediatrics. Oh, wow. So it was inspiring because of that, too. And she is um, on the East Coast in a very prestigious uh, residency program. Wow. So she was very inspiring to me. We had lots of talks. She originally wanted to do OBGYN as her first thought. Um, but then she realized it would be very difficult in the OR for her because of the masks. And she read lips. Wow. So... Um, I think that was really kind of her epiphany mo moment where she realized she maybe wasn't going to do exactly what she wanted to do, but she could still be a doctor and, and take care of people. So that that's amazing, right? I want to circle back around to your son. 
Um, and you can tell us what sort of disability if you want to, if you're comfortable with that. But that's the first thing that you've said, except for the neo-anatomy test, that probably didn't go as planned. It was. So I want to dig into that because I think a lot of women have children that maybe, probably because you're a doctor, you were a little more prepared for. But I just like if you feel comfortable to speak towards um, what it was when you found out your son was going to have some challenges and then how you decide to navigate that as a parent. Yeah, uh, Ben is our second son and Ben is autistic. Okay. He's a high functioning autistic. Um, so our first, um, we knew something wasn't right. For, I mean, and you never want to compare children, right? You know, but uh, he wasn't. But you do. <laughs> he wasn't quite the same as Danny. Um, I had been during residency too, which is very difficult uh, time uh, in general. And so I, a lot of it, I chalked up to the fact that I was just tired, and so I wasn't dealing with his issues very well. And so um, when he was two he wasn't speaking much and so we took him for speech therapy and he got speech therapy Um, then when he got into kindergarten he was the kid so the teacher's reading a book to the class and they're all sitting around in a circle you know she's sitting on a chair yeah you know the norman rockwell painting and ben is behind her turning cartwheels okay and and she was like this this wonderful teacher who I think retired the year after she had been, but she'd been in teaching a long time. And so when I went in and I was you know being one of those parent volunteers in the room, and I said, "Well, you're a parent volunteer while you're okay, you yeah, do all the and, things." And, and I and I said, "Oh my God, Ben is like turning cart." And she said, "You may want to get him checked for ADHD." And I went okay, here I am, you know, yeah. a doctor who takes care of kids with ADHD, and I'm like, oh, okay. So we took him in, his pediatrician um, tested him, and, and he began on medications for ADHD in first grade. So then he got to middle school. He was really not doing well socially or um, academically, and it was kind of one of those come-to-Jesus moments. I said, you know, Greg, I'm a pediatrician. I deal with these kids all the time, but I don't know what's wrong with Ben. Yeah. And he goes, I don't know either. We need to take him to a specialist. So we went to a developmental pediatrician, um, and it was the first time things started falling into place when he started telling us about the possibility of Ben having autism. And at the time, um, autism wasn't as uh, often diagnosed as it is now. Um, I had learned about it in residency, but I didn't think I had many kids that I followed who had autism. So it was a new diagnosis. So here's the story associated with that. Everything is about stories, but uh, we'd had the team meeting and we'd gotten the diagnosis and we were all processing it and we were on our way back to school and Ben was in middle school at the time. And I said, well, Ben, what do you think about this? Do you understand everything everybody talked about today? Because he was in on all of the meeting and he turned and looked at me and he said, well, mom, I'm just glad to know I'm not stupid. So it was, was kind of a realization to him, like, yeah, he, it was better to have the diagnosis. He really thought he was stupid because people told him he was stupid, including teachers, which yeah. I found out later. But um, it was an eye-opening moment for me that part of my job as a pediatrician is to make sure kids don't think that they're stupid or yeah. bad because of the circumstances of their life. You wow. know, that is, that's, that is what labels a kid and that what makes a kid then perform a certain way because if they believe they they have uh, no hope yeah under those circumstances so 
We were diagnosed at a time before ABA was really, or uh, applied behavioral therapy was, was the norm for most okay. kids with autism, and Ben was high functioning anyway. So we kind of were learning things as we went. But it was another time where I felt like I'd failed, yeah. you know, as a mother, um, as a pediatrician um, as well, because I didn't diagnose him. I yeah. had no idea what was wrong with him. I had a, an inkling, but you know, you never want to. You don't want to believe it. Say it out loud. Yeah. Um, but it was, and it was hard for for my husband also because, you know, you want sons who will do all the things that, yeah. that you as a father have, have done. And Ben was very difficult to deal with. I mean, it was a lot of yelling, a lot of um, difficult situations in our home. And um, his brothers, there was, at the time, two of them, one, he was the middle, he's the middle child. And um, both of his brothers were very um, angry at him also because he got a lot of attention. Yeah. And so they, and they didn't understand what, you know, well, then we, then Ben went to high school and, um, he got involved in theater, which is a place where you go to be accepted for who you are. Yeah. It was such a wonderful thing. And all my kids were in the theater, but for ben, my son's in theater at 12 <laughs> and now at their age, it's cool to do football and theater. Exactly. Yeah. You can be a jock and be in theater. Right. You can be a cool guy and be at theater. Right. But for Ben, it was a haven, a place wow. where people accepted him for who he was and thought he was kind of cool because he was different, you yeah. know? So um, it, those years were wonderful, to, especially since middle school was so abysmal. Yeah. And I often think middle school just sucks regardless, it, right? Middle school So any is, challenges just make it worse. It is an abyss. Um, and my youngest son said to me once, the first day of high school, he came home and he's just beaming. And I said, oh, you must have had a great day at school. He said, yeah, I had a great day at school. And I said, well, you look so different than you did when you were in middle school. And he says, mom, middle school's an abyss. And I said, <laughs> okay. I said, well, you never said anything. He said, like I didn't have to go. I had to go. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> Which one's the perfection? Perfectionist like you. The youngest. And... Did any of them become doctors? No. No. I have uh, Danny, my oldest, um, was going to be an actor. He went to L.A. and lived there for a while. Oh, wow. Auditioned. He said, I've never seen pe 20 people who look like me and sound like me. <laughs> but there was at yeah. every audition. And he's a very talented young man. But he came. he's back home in Kansas City, and he does website design. Okay. A lot like his dad's. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Ben is a cook. He works uh, at a local restaurant, and he's um, been employed for five years now, which oh, is wow. remarkable as an autistic adult. They have very difficult time with change, and imagine the restaurant industry yeah. and change. But his management is great. They know if there's a change on the menu or something else, they have to just go over it with Ben a couple times. He'll nice. do what they ask him to do. Well, that's great. He found a place. Yeah, he's found a place, and, and so it's we're we're very blessed with him being employed first of all and second of all in a place that he likes yeah and then our youngest um he graduated with a degree in music education he has an angel voice okay and he taught orchestra for two years um at lawrence lawrence free state and lawrence high and uh, now he's in the music ministry at a church so he's pastor oh cool and um so they've done all very different things yeah very different uh do you, having a son with autism and then autism becoming, like you said early on, not a, not a ton of people 
really knew what it was, but now I believe that most people are at least familiar with the term autism. Did that make you more of an expert in that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it also attracts people to my practice who mm -hmm. have kids who are autistic. Um, and I learned, as I tell parents, I learned kind of the hard way. So I'm here to give you some shortcuts yeah. about how to take care of your kid. And the first thing is you have to know you're the advocate for your child. And this is true in disability in general. Okay. And not be afraid of that because no one else is going to advocate for your child. They're going to give you, give you what you ask for only if you ask for it. Yeah. So that was a lesson, a hard lesson to learn. I thought people would say, oh, Ben has autism. Let me see what I can do to help him. Yeah. Oh, no. No. <laughs> that is not how it works. Well, it's not their issue until you, no, right? They've tried to stare, step away from any sort of disability, really. Absolutely. Um, what are your thoughts on all the controversy around autism? Well, as a doctor, yeah, well, it's probably more educated in it than Facebook. Yeah. I, I'd like to think so. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, but um, I can state with certainty as a physician and also a, a mother who has a child who's autistic that it doesn't it doesn't come from vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, there's been enough study done, and in my own personal um, life, we know now that it's genetic. Um, that some most of these genes are probably uh, variations that happen. That, uh, but there's also the thought that there's people in your family who are those, you know, eccentric uncles yeah. who probably are autistic too. They just didn't get diagnosed. And so now what we're seeing is really a, a sea change. What kids used to have be labeled with uh, intellectual disability who now are being told, uh, given the autism diagnosis. So we, as we saw the number of kids with intellectual disability go down diagnostically, we're seeing the autism go up. I, I do think that, you know, part of it is lifestyle related because we know that older dads are more likely to have autistic children. Oh, really? So, um, and we're seeing people delay having kids yeah. more and more. And, and so, there's an element of lifestyle changes that also I think has increased the, the prevalence of autism, but I can say with certainty it has nothing to do with vaccines. Does it make you angry with the amount of yes. misinformation? Yes, it makes me very angry. And it also makes me angry because especially the anti-vaccination folks will really um, label autism as uh, a disease. And yeah. it, it, what, what it is, it is a, is a disease. It is a neurodevelopmental difference. Yeah. And many kids, yes, are severely impaired, and we need to help them and, and to make them as, as functional as they possibly can be. But my son is just a normal person. He doesn't have a disease. He has a, a, a difference. Yeah. And so when they start talking about you know autism and that not really... vaccinating is what's causing the diseases. Yes. <laughs> right? Measles yes. and all the ones that we exactly. thought were gone. That's... Yeah. But actually, and I'm not a doctor, and I, I can pick that up. It is crazy. I'm in mom groups. I probably need to get myself out of some mom groups, but I'm in mom groups. Um, my kids are now 7 and 12, right? So you get put in these mom groups early on. And it is literally the mom groups now say, we will not talk about vaccines in here because it becomes – people sit – it's a very hard line. You're on one side or the other. That's correct. And if you're on the anti-vaxxer side, vaccine – I don't know what it's called, anti-vax side – you have very strong beliefs without much proof, which makes me wonder how far in other areas of life can we really get if people feel 
they can feel so strong about something without any proof. Absolutely. Part of it too, here it is, is this real anti-science flavor that we have right now in, in not on just in our country, but in the world where people don't believe the science that's out there, or they also don't believe necessarily doctors. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm active on Twitter and you'll get the anti-vaccination po- folks who are posting things saying, well, you're just a big pharma shill. Well, I'm as far away from a pharma shill. First of all, vaccines do not make money. That's not the reason we right. do them. We immunize to protect children from disease. Yeah. If we made money, that would be a bonus, but it's not. Right. It's not a money making. And so to, to accuse us of, uh, yeah, exactly. To accuse us of we do this for the money is so, it's like a this injury to your soul. Yeah. You know, I'm here to help children. You, know? <laughs> you just don't want them to get the measles in 2019, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Well, and it's scary if you're having a baby. I think we kind of, we thought about maybe doing one more, but I'm about to hit 40. And then by the time you label all the stuff between the age and the different stuff that's going on, we, and having two kids that are driving me crazy, we decided not not to move forward with that. But yeah, it's kind of scary, the stuff you have to look out for now. Because yeah. we kind of had it down for a while. We did, yeah. Um, do I understand this right? And kind of explain this to me. Are you second in command at KU Med? No, no, no. Okay, but you have a lot of fancy titles. So I what do. exactly... What are you all in charge of? Okay. Um, so uh, my immediate boss is Dr. Bob Klein, and he is um, he's in charge of the Office of Student Affairs and Services. Okay. Faculty and Student Affairs and Services. And so um, he over- <clears throat> overarches all three schools at the Med Center, and so I'm in his second-in-command Okay. Um, for student services. For student services. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, I'm in charge of the registrar's office the um, student health, student education, uh, educational support, uh, counseling, financial aid, okay, and student life. So those are the the uh, areas that I oversee. So you're pretty high up at KMAT. Yeah. <laughs> you're very humble as well. So you do all of that plus practice. Yes. Plus teach. Yes. How long do you think that you'll do it for? I've talked about that because, you know, I'm getting to the age now of, well... Well, I just think you probably, like, have a good retirement, too, right? (laughs) Like, so how long do you see yourself practicing or... Or do you see yourself doing all of it or maybe just a portion of it? Like, what's future plans? Yeah, I think uh, a portion of it. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever quit practicing. I yeah. I enjoy it too much. Is that your much. favorite part of it? Yeah, yeah. it really is. Um, the second favorite part is teaching. But I've kind of, now with this administrative job, have slowed down on my teaching. And, and I, I, as with every transition in my career, I've, I've tried to understand the grief that I have for that piece that I'm kind of giving up and and try to understand this is not going to be the way it's used to be are you okay with that yeah because um that's the decision you make as you transition and so um I I'm okay with it I I think the administrative piece is fascinating it's something that I had done before but not to the degree that I'm doing now yeah. and um, being in charge of the of the departments I've I've interacted with all those departments before but not been in charge of them yeah so getting to know those people who work there as well as the students through those offices has been eye-opening and wonderful um, and I enjoy it um, I still enjoy it but I 
I've told my husband, I said, someday I'm going to work when I want to, where I want to. <laughs> yeah, me too. Someday, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's my ultimate goal is if I practice, I can do it at, you know, one of the safety net clinics or volunteer at JDOC or do something like that where, yeah, I can go in when I want. Um, you mentioned the grief of going to admin, but I imagine as a pediatrician at a hospital who probably also gets pulled in for every big case. There has to be some sort of grief with children, right? How do you deal with that? People always ask me that when I told them I wanted to do pediatrics. Well, what if you have a patient who dies? And yeah. Well, we all have patients who die. Right. Um, and it's not different whether they're 90 years old or nine weeks old yeah. under the circumstances. If you've got a relationship with a patient and they die, you, you have to deal with it. Um, it's, it's probably the hardest thing that you learn and most of the time in medical school, you have at least one patient who dies. And then in residency, when you're in charge of them, it becomes very personal at that point. Uh, you do the best you can to take care of people. And then you have to come to that epiphany moment where you go, there's nothing more we can do. And talking to parents, especially of a, of a young child, when you make that, make that uh, conversation happen, um, there's, there's always going to be the first, the stages of grief yeah. where you, it's disbelief. No, there has to be something more we can do. You know, this is my son, this is my daughter. Yeah. And then they, have, but you say advocate, right? So, yeah. the, so you've taught them to advocate. So yeah. you definitely go through Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. They have to, and they need to. Yeah. And if they don't, then it's not, it's, it's going to be an incomplete process yeah. for them. So you have to help them do that. Um, when you lose a patient, it is like losing a child in many wow. ways. So you have to um, deal with it on all kinds of level. And I tell my patients, you know, when we're talking, I may uh, become emotional. Uh, that's me. Yeah. Um, I have colleagues who are just as, as kind as I am or more and they don't get emotional so you get the variations with physicians of how they handle it but i think the the biggest thing that i want my patients to know is i care about them yeah i care about their families and so uh, for me that's showing emotion what is the one piece of advice you would give to somebody that is thinking about going into a similar career path in life the biggest piece of advice that i would tell them is to be present um, work hard, uh, do your best. That's more than one piece of advice. No, but, but that's good. But um, I found the biggest thing for me was um, when people said to me, you know, you're really good at this. Would you like to try this new job? Yeah. I would say, okay. Yeah. I was there, first of all, and second of all, I was willing to try something new. Um, and sometimes it worked well, and sometimes it's like, eh, that was good, but eh. Like when I was residency program director, I loved it, but when I was done with it, I was done. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm done with this piece. <laughs> Chapter over. <laughs> not gonna do that again. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it taught me so much about all kinds of things. So be present and be open to change. Be present and be open, and then for the moms, be your own, be your kid's own advocate. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was fascinating to me. Thank I you. I really appreciate it. That is it for this week's Cocktail Hour. Do you want to hear from your favorite local businesswoman? 
If you know a woman in business who is shaking shit up, send your recommendations to HeyGirl at CocktailHourPodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and share our podcast with your friends. We share our stories to motivate and inspire you, so spread the love around. Until next time, I'm Erin Polk. Keep your class and your glass raised, and we'll see you at the next Cocktail Hour. Thanks, Pam.